Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Uh, today, we are joined by uh, Dr. Jenna Congdon, uh, who is an animal welfare researcher uh, and a friend of mine. So thank you so much, Jenna, for uh, agreeing to come on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so for maybe people that don't uh, know you, do you want to sort of give an idea of like uh, your background and, and what you're sort of uh, currently uh, um, looking at uh, in the whole scope of uh, animal welfare research? Okay. Um, well, I'm in psychology, so want to start off there. Uh, so psychology is really just the study of brain and behavior. Obviously, non-human animals have both brains and behavior. So a lot of my research has been focused on um, the cognitive abilities of animals. So at some point, you know, my graduate studies, I was studying songbird communication, uh, looking at their perception of predators, how they communicate about those predators. Uh, at another point in time, I was uh, flying down to Arizona frequently and studying ant navigation, so desert ants, um, and how they navigate through that space. Uh, and then when I was at the Toronto Zoo, of course, uh, that's when I was studying orangutans, more focused on a project that was on artificial intelligence, uh, building that artificial intelligence to monitor orangutans, monitor their well-being, so we could look at what kind of welfare things we could implement, what type of enrichment we could apply uh, based on what the animals were actually doing all day. And since then, I've gotten a professor position at Concordia University of Edmonton, and I started a collaboration with the Edmonton Valley Zoo here. We're starting off with emus, so right now I'm teaching emus how to use touchscreens so we can provide this cognitive enrichment to a species that has, you know, kind of been tucked away during the avian flu, hasn't gotten as much enrichment as you would hope. Um, so having this touchscreen task going, and then we're going to be expanding that most likely to seals and otters next throughout the summer, um, as I just got a, a glassless touchscreen the other day that oh. we're looking to work with there. So that'll be a great opportunity for enrichment for them and for me as a person focused on comparative cognition to be able to understand a little bit more about their perceptual abilities. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a whole bunch to dig in there. Uh, <laughs> I know just, you know, that's super simple. Uh, so, so where, uh, did you always like sort of start with the idea of going into like animal psychology and behavior or were like, how did, how did that sort of come, come about? I was actually not entirely sure what the plan was. Um, so I went into biology. It seemed like a natural fit for me. Uh, when I got there, I wasn't madly in love and I took a psychology class and I found out, you know, the classic psychology isn't just couches uh, and mm. feelings, which is still a very important part of psychology, but there are so many segments. And one of those areas is comparative cognition and all about looking at 
the mental processes of other animals right aside from ourselves and in comparison to ourselves as well mm. so one of the things that i've been thinking a lot about and and uh i, re I recently i've talked about it a couple times but um uh it, it was uh, an immense world by ed young i recently read that book and it's all about i don't know if you've read it but it's about um like animal perception and our sort of bias as people uh, and the, you know, essentially we're visual, we're visual species. We actually have pretty good hearing and pretty good, you know, senses of smell, but we don't really use them for anything besides if there's a sudden change in, in, in one of those things. So, um, you know, we put the, especially when we're, you know, taking care of animals and providing them with enrichment and, and all of those things, like we're very biased in how we approach, uh, animals. And I'd love to hear your sort of thoughts on that because, you know, the whole, uh, your research on like songbird communication and how they're like perceiving that communication. Like, I, I think that's, you know, super interesting. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah, I think a lot of the way we perceive animals is always in relation to ourselves, right? That that anthropocentric, human-focused way of looking at other animals. And I think that's one of the most important things we can consider when we're looking at animals of how do they exist in their environment. Um, one of the most obvious ones was when I was working with the orangutans, working uh, with Ezekiel and Dr. Suzanne McDonald. I know you had Ezekiel on recently. And when we would sit there and, and watch the orangutans, people would come by and see a single or maybe two orangutans and almost kind of make these comments like, oh, it looks like a lonely orangutan. When in reality, orangutans are semi-solitary. Mm -hmm. The happiest way an orangutan exists is by themselves or maybe with, you know, mother offspring pair. So... We walk in with this idea of what it should look like based on what makes us happy, being around people, being social, et cetera, when in reality, if you actually think about the animal and how they exist in the wild, it's the perfect setting for that particular animal. So coming back around to kind of the way animals interact in their world, um, that's not just always visual, uh, which I happen to be doing a very visual task right now with these touchscreens. But yes, when I was working with the songbirds, they can't always see other songbirds, right? When foliage is full, they can't necessarily see other flock mates. They can't necessarily see a predator nearby. So it's extremely important to be able to communicate um, when there is a high threat predator, when there is a food source that the rest of the flock mates should come and join in, um, when it's time to mate, being able to find those mates they're doing that in an auditory way. They're um, actually a monomorphic species, which means that they they look the same between males and females. There's no real weight difference, no plumage difference. Um, so the songs from a distance can indicate if it's going to be a successful mate um, in many different ways before actually even just you know, getting a lot closer. So auditory can basically be everything when it comes to birds, uh, especially when they're they're separated at a further distance. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I think my dog is barking in the background, but um, oh, I didn't hear it at all. <laughs> Perfect. It's probably drowned out by the construction noise that's also happening across the street. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's super interesting because yeah, it's it's something that I think uh, a lot about, and especially with uh, you know 
habitat design and, and stuff like that. Like we're sort of, you know, there's nowhere when you look at like the architectural drawings for an exhibit, like there's nowhere other than a visual sort of stance that is being taken on, uh, you know, like the entire design, like it's, it's just a, a drawing and there's no, like, what, what is there, is there anything that you can think of that like comes to mind when you feel like is the, is the sort of like next frontier as far as like, um, how animals are perceiving the environment and like what we can do to sort of bridge that gap. Anything that you can think of on that? So I was actually reading a paper recently and I loved the line that uh, they had written in there that said that many exhibits prioritize aesthetic naturalism uh, for the benefit of the viewing public, but offer little functional naturalism um, in that they provide no new behavioral opportunities, which are relevant to the animal's needs. Um, so I should actually cite that first. Uh, Weber et al. And I think that was a 2020 paper focused on orangutans. And it's it's true. There's quite a bit of that design. And I mean, obviously, it's being designed by the humans. Um, so what do the animals actually want? And I think that was one of the greatest things that I took away from my postdoctoral work with Dr. Suzanne McDonald, because she was always focused on the preference of the animals, the choice of the animals, and actually asking them what they thought uh, and preferred in that case. Obviously, you can't just hand an animal a survey. You have to get a little bit more creative with how that looks. But to actually be told then by the animal what they want. Um, one of my favorite kind of questions, conceptual questions that she posed was, sometimes zoos will play music well then what music do animals prefer you know are the orangutans rock animals are they country yeah. animals um and then when you actually put that into a scientific design and you give them this choice to be able to choose which one it is when silence is offered they choose silence every single time. So they're telling us that their preference is silence, that music is some sort of disruption. Um, it's likely blocking the kinds of things that they would be attending to, like auditory feedback. Um, so to be able to actually design experiments and say, you tell us mm. uh, what you prefer, what you like, um, is really important. Um, and, and that's actually what the, the title of that paper was. Uh, it's actually co-designing with orangutans, enhancing the design of enrichment for, for animals, because there should be a way that we can de design these experiments to actually make sure that we're getting their feedback instead of deciding what's appropriate for them. Right. And yeah. I mean, that's essentially what all of the enrichment research is doing, trying to get at what's actually improving those measures uh of behavioral welfare yeah no absolutely and and I, I will link that paper uh in the in the show notes for people to uh check out i i i do really like research that's really like asking that fundamental question as far as like what what are you choosing because i find th those sort of studies to be like the most like they're they're very easily transferable to the people uh, that are that are actually taking care of the animals you know like you can you can 
basically take a lot of those studies. They're not super complex in their in their design, and uh, you know you can take a lot of those those methods and sort of apply them to your to your animals that are you know from the same species they were looking at sometimes, and and ask the exact same question and get you know uh, and get results from them. Whereas like you know there's some more abstract uh, studies and, and, and those have their place, but it's, it's, it's awesome to actually have ones that are very, very, you know, you can bridge that gap very, very quickly. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So you're currently looking at emus and touchscreens. Why, why emus and, and how did this sort of, uh, research, research come about? Yeah. So, um, I, annually attend uh, the conference on comparative cognition and um, in that time obviously met some incredible colleagues um, so a different Suzanne uh, Dr. Suzanne Gray uh, her and I have um, decided to collaborate she's in Boston uh, at the Franklin Park Zoo and she's been working with a variety of bird species uh, to it's called a global local task. So trying to see if you look at the world uh, on a very global basis, taking the whole um, or on a local basis. So looking at all of the kind of fine details. So as humans, we're very global. We take in all of the information, whereas chickens, for example, are very local. They're, you know, focusing on very individual grain, etc. Mm. Um, so where do kind of all the other animals lie? A lot of the um, primate species um, that aren't great apes, they are typically also local, which is kind of interesting, uh, the divide there of basically like when did humans become this kind of global species? Um, and bees, for example, are also a global species. Um, they are very much looking at their navigational abilities on that grand scheme of things. So she was doing some really neat work with touchscreens, um, with a bunch of different species of birds. And um, starting as a new faculty member, I was, you know, trying to get research off the ground. And so we decided to spark this collaboration um, in which I was able to obtain some funding, buy some touchscreens, and she is working with emus. We do have emus. So it's like the perfect start to right away double mm. the number of subjects that we can have, um, be a lot more confident in the results that we have. Um, but then we can expand outwards from there as to which species we really want to look at. So as I said, there uh, is likely um, interest in the seals, the otters, because they're very engaged already with mm -hmm. their keepers. Um, they seem to want to have that kind of um, exposure, enrichment, uh, very kind of high energy attentive animals. So ideally it also means on a research si researcher side of things, quicker data uh, mm. as well. We can learn things a lot quicker when they're, they're pretty engaged in it. The yeah. emus are doing well so far you know we've figured out their their preference for food as to what we can actually uh reward them with to keep them engaged they're big blueberry fans mm. uh just in case you needed to know that about emus <laughs> uh a lot of the the small little berries um already kind of giving me a local perception vibe uh if you will but um 
they're they're touching the screens now so we'll be able to to start actually collecting the data as as to you know if we train them one way now we give you novel novel images what are you attending to based on what you've learned so far right right yeah yeah and 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 i was more wondering about emus because yeah as you as you mentioned like some of the other species that you mentioned are are much more engaged than anybody that's i'm sure there's people listening that have worked with emus and ostrich and oh there's a lot of skepticism when when yeah. we proposed the emus <laughs> yeah because they're they're not necessarily like you know i i don't i don't like calling animals unintelligent or anything like that because they've all got their niche and they're all intelligent at exactly. doing the thing they're doing but emus are especially trying to like provide enrichment and stuff it's like what's what's happening in in that little brain you know <laughs> so. absolutely yeah it was it was quite an interesting proposition for sure uh thankfully i could already say you know dr gray has emus interacting so uh we we know it's possible mm. but yes there was a lot of um you know ranking animals on on intelligence there's no point to that yeah all animals are, are doing exactly what they need to be doing in their own spaces but emus are emus yeah. let's just you know simplify it like yeah, that yeah. and uh at the beginning there was a little just orienting uh the birds even towards the screen but um now when we walk in they are basically waiting at the gate ready to come inside you know nice sunny morning and they're waiting at the gate to be able to come uh and interact with those touch screens so i take that uh very anecdotally as a preference to actually engage with these things, which is really, really fun to see that change in behavior that, you know, now they know they can yeah. come in and get some blueberries for touching some screens. <laughs> yeah, no, because I have found emus to be very, uh, like curious in what's going on, especially if something catches their eye, they, they do really want to, uh, investigate it, but they tend to also like, you know, Oh, there's something else. And then, you know, they're kind of like, uh, like herding cats, I guess would be and I was them. I was very worried about that with the uh, they're housed with the zebras right now, mm. and um, yeah, sometimes the zebras are are doing things that are quite distracting. But yeah. uh, the other day, the male zebra uh, made a lot of noise and and kind of like pushed over his food bowl by accident, and the emu stayed really focused. So I was oh, like, good. okay, we're yeah. we're getting to that point in this process that um, we really have the emu's attention. So yeah what a concept what a it's always <laughs> such a funny update for people oh, yeah. outside of the animal world when you're like yeah i was i was just i was training emu today uh, <laughs> to use touch screens yeah <laughs> that's super cool and and so what what's like going on on the touch screen and and what sort of like consideration to perception and stuff was given like in order to decide on like what what that looks like so we're actually using a task that's been consistently used since uh, the 1970s, um, of course, starting with humans. Um, and this global local task, you can kind of consider um, letters. If, if you think of like a T and an H, let's say I rewarded you every time you touched a, the T instead of the H. So then to ask this kind of global local, what are you attending to? Once you have this trained of which one's gonna reinforce you, then think of a large T made of small H's and a large H made of small T's. Mm. So then all of a sudden it's like, what is the big one, the global one is the larger 
uh, concept. And then what it's made of would be the local. So there you can start to see the shift as to what they're attending to. We're obviously not giving them instruction. You can't give instructions to non-human animals. So all you can do is look at their behavior. And if they're trained to one thing and you give them this novel situation of big T made of small H's, big H made of small T's, you've previously been reinforced for T's, which one are you going to choose? And there are obviously many more levels of this, uh, many different complexities um, that we'll go through visually to to make sure that's exactly um, their preference, that hmm. way that they're viewing the world. Um, but that's kind of like the the simple way that I can help you visualize it without just flooding your screen yeah. with images. Yeah, no, that, that, that does make sense. So, so what does, what does like success look like, like at the end of like, at what point do you sort of move on to other animals or like, what, what does, what does that look like? So we've got our entire um, experimental design in terms of um, the different types of um, stages we're going to go through the different types of images. Um, and so when you see that kind of consistent responding we'll we'll have a certain number of images once they get through all of those what does the data tell us um which way are they swaying maybe they're not swaying maybe there's some sort of combination um at that point the data will tell us what the animal is perceiving essentially when i was working with songbirds we were um doing um, operant go no go tasks, mm. which basically mean that uh, they either respond or they withhold responding. They go or they no go. Um, because in this case, instead of pecking like we're doing with the emus, songbirds don't really, well, chickadees specifically, don't particularly peck. They hop. And mm. so the best way to work with songbirds is to get them to hop into a feeder. Uh, it triggers an infrared beam. If it was a correct response based on their training, then they get access to food. If it's an incorrect response, then actually um, the house lights would go out, indicate that that's an incorrect response. So you basically, you train them up to a particular category and then you give them a bunch of novel stimuli that they haven't heard before and you see how they respond and you can infer something from that as to what they see, uh, as to what they perceive about their world. So I would train them to well-known high threat or low threat owls and hawks, the vocalizations of those. Um, so one bird would be in a high threat category, for example. They would always get reinforced for going to high threat, never get reinforced for going to low threat. Then you give them a bunch of owls and hawks that we don't really know how the songbirds mm. perceive them. And so when you give them those kind of middle size hawks and owls and say, well, what do you think about these guys? Then they either go or they don't go, depending on if they were reinforced for that category. So if all of a sudden you're seeing that they're always responding to northern pygmy owls, then you can feel really confident that because they were in the group that was high threat, they're always trying to go get food based on hearing a northern pygmy owl. Mm. They think it fits in the category of being a high threat. They're telling us that that's a high threat predator. Whereas if they always withhold from, you know, like a short-eared owl or something like that, then all of a sudden they're telling us, I don't think that's a very high threat predator. I'm not going to get reinforced. I'm not going to respond. Um, so that's kind of how we can get that information from them as to how they categorize things. If you tell them, I want you to 
get food based on this category. Mm. Here's a bunch of new stuff. It tells us the responding or the not responding, whether it does or does not fit in the category. Right. Yeah. No, that, that sounds super interesting. What do you think the biggest sort of like application of, of future research around that, uh, you know, and these sort of concepts like could be for, you know, zoos and, and aquariums and stuff? So understanding what these animals um, actually perceive, prefer, I mean, obviously the threat stuff is a little less uh, about the zoos although if there's a particular sound that's potentially bothering them mm. um at one point i was looking at um northern stalwart owl vocalizations everybody there's a lot of people who think owls just always sound like who who mm. which is basically <laughs> just great horned owls yeah there's a lot of different other sounds that owls make um and northern stalwart owls actually sound a lot like you know the alarm that goes off when a truck is backing up? Oh, that, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Beep, beep. That's what a northern sawwood owl sounds like. Oh. Um, and so there was quite a bit of concern that I had about um, how that might be affecting songbirds in terms of the like oil sands and things like that, where there's a lot right. of these trucks and those kind of industrial sounds that actually sound quite a lot like Northern sawwood owls. Uh, the good news is when we put them uh, in these operant conditioning um, experiments and asked them, do trucks sound like Northern sawwood owls? Thankfully, although bioacoustically, they look very similar. When I put it through uh, my bioacoustic software, it looks very similar. Um, the birds can tell it apart which is awesome. Mm. That's what you would definitely hope. But again, you don't really know until you ask them, what do you perceive? Um, so again, the predator stuff is potentially a little less applicable uh, to zoos. But in terms of understanding more about our animals, that's always going to be a win in terms of, of having them housed within our space, being able to understand what's important to them, what's not important to them, um, how we can make sure that you know, these are their homes. So how can we make sure that they're most comfortable and happy in their homes uh, based on as much knowledge as we can gain about them? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that uh, that entire scenario, like, you know, begs like a, like an interesting question, especially with, uh, you know, like you'd never think like a back at the backup sound of a, of a truck would sound like a predator to uh, you know, one species and, and how many animals are being housed in zoos right now that like, you know, it, wherever they're found in, you know, like uh, part of like South America or wherever, like what sort of like uh, jungle noise sounds like something that's happening in their environment right now that we don't even really perceive as, you know, we perceive it as being totally normal. Like what if like the, the furnace that's heating the building is making a noise that sounds like, you know, some sort of predator or, or, or something like that. It's a, a super interesting thing to think about and, and, and probably something that, uh, you know, specific animals are currently, you know, experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's uh, one of the reasons that I always support all sorts of different types of collaborations because there's there are just things that some people would pick up on, notice, mm -hmm. have exposure to um, that other people may not have ever thought about. So I absolutely love working with zookeepers uh, because they offer so much insight into the animals that they work so closely with, have incredible relationships with, and they notice the kinds of things um, that 
maybe other people haven't thought about. They have some of just like the greatest, most natural um, questions. Mm. So it's, it's a really incredible collaboration to have uh, people who are working, you know, field work, people who are working in zoos and conservation sites, and then people are designing the kinds of experiments that I am uh, to be able to all come together as this beautiful marriage of, what can we really learn? And then also have that applicability of, well, what have we learned? How can it influence, uh, again, making a better habitat for these animals? A lot of these animals don't have natural habitats anymore. Obviously, I was working with Sumatran yeah. orangutans um, very soon to be um, extinct, quite likely, with the way the palm oil crisis is going. Um, so this could be their home their only home uh, forever. So being able to understand what we can do to make sure that it is an enriched, fulfilled, fulfilled is obviously a very human term, yeah. um, but life that that looks like their nature, but also is actually doing what it's supposed to, not just for the aesthetic purposes, but as I mentioned, the actual functional purposes um, that they're getting what they need from that environment. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and, and especially like, uh, you know, being able to tell, you know, what they actually want is really the sort of holy grail as, as it, as it, uh, you know, relates to being like proactive in animal welfare, because like, you know, so often we're reactive. And I feel like as a, as a field, like, especially like on, you know, in zoos, it's trying to become more proactive and, and, and stop a lot of problems and things before they happen. But, you know, without actually knowing like how an orangutan is going to perceive construction noise over here, um, you know, like setting stuff up and, and, and being proactive against it is good. But if like, you know, if, if by being proactive and, and, and setting up sound barriers and, and doing this and doing that and changing their environment, like that might actually be doing more harm than good. So like you, you really don't know unless you actually can get the animal to tell you or to show you how, how that those things sort of affect them. Exactly. And, um, I, I think that's one of the things you see a lot kind of with the general public, uh, you know, the media will, will release this finding that we have and you kind of see the comment section and it, and it's, well, didn't we know that already? You know, wouldn't we have already expected that? It's like, you don't know until you know, mm -hmm. you don't know until you actually have the data to support it because it may look like that from perhaps a single anecdotal experience, but what is actually happening um, over time, the actual variables, when we start to parse those out, it might not be the one thing we were all focused on, it could be something else. And then sometimes it's not as almost intuitive as you would expect. Um, so the I know with penguins um, that the, at, at one point, it was kind of like these smooth um, cement kind of mm. pool areas. Um, and then they wanted to implement these kind of rockier areas that feel a bit more natural. Uh, when you actually look at birth rates, though, the less natural, more artificial has been successful, to my knowledge, mm. um, for these penguins instead. So it's kind of funny where you think, you know, we're doing the right thing. We're doing the most natural thing. When you actually look at the data 
penguins are producing more penguins if we're mm -hmm. going from a conservation side of things and you need you know more of this particular species what is actually the right environment that's the environment that they uh you know were born in that they live in naturally but perhaps there's a better way that we can do it based on the actual numbers that we're getting the the success rates that we're mm -hmm. seeing in things that you wouldn't expect are almost the na most natural so it's interesting because mm -hmm. most natural isn't necessarily always the answer which yeah. uh, i'm sure shocks a lot of people um but you know just as as we're not living in our most natural environments um improvements can be made in many different ways and the only way that we have that information is is exploring finding it out uh taking a look at each individual variable uh the environment the context how can mm. we adjust things and and how does it affect their behavior yeah yeah and and it's and that whole like natural non-natural like debate is is one of those things i run into all the time like with Absolutely. wild enrichment like uh, there's specific zoos that i work with that like you know their uh, their rules for enrichment are like natural only like everything has to look natural and it's just like it's such a hindrance because it doesn't matter all that matters is like if the animal felt that that experience was enriching like yes or no like who cares what like everyone just give their dog a i, I give my dog a paper bag and she plays with it for for you know, an hour where, and I give her like a dog <laughs> toy and she plays with it for five minutes. Right. Like it's, it, it, who cares what it is? Like it, it just matters, uh, you know, how the animal perceived that situation. <laughs> exactly. And the way we get that is through their behavior change. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, a lot of, a lot of zoos are focused on, you know, when you start to see the stereotypic behavior, how can we reduce that? What kinds of things are improving it? Um, and you do see some natural ways that can improve it, like instead of just putting food out, make food this kind of hide and seek, more natural foraging type of thing. That seems to be very, very useful. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to cognitive enrichment, no, obviously, uh, most of these animals, I, you know, I've never heard of a natural situation where an emu's worked with a touchscreen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it is a way to cognitively stimulate them. Yeah. So I think there's kind of, there's that pairing there's a little bit of each, right? Where you want to make sure you're you're implementing the the naturalistic, what you would see in their normal environment side of things. But as you're saying, which things are actually working? Mm -hmm. Which things are truly improving? Um, you know how they're working, their their social interactions, um, their foraging interactions, etc. Yeah. And you, and you brought up an interesting point, like with the, with the penguins, um, like actually like what is your metric of success when it comes to like measuring the well being of, of the flock in that, in that case, but especially with groups of animals, like, uh, you know, like reproduction success is, is a, is a classic one, especially with like reptiles and stuff like that. But, you know, are we able to go deeper than that? And what, like what does success look like with a lot of these species is like something that I feel like is going to change, uh, rapidly as we, yeah, do understand more about, you know, what, uh, what sort of state of well being they're, they're in and, and, and how we can define that and how we can sort of measure that. 
you know. It's, and it's I'm so glad you brought up metrics because there are so many different ways to measure well-being. And so some people are going to be focused on reproductive success. Other people, reproductive success isn't the the point, the purpose mm. of of well-being for that animal. Um, so the way you measure it can also change dependent on the situation and what you're looking for for that animal. Uh, if it's a young animal versus an older animal, you're going to have different metrics. You're going to have different metrics for different species as well or um, within the kind of environment habitat that that particular space can provide as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely something that's going to be growing and, and definitely an area that I see advancing in, in the whole study of animal welfare and uh, you know, animal behavior. Um, I, if we could, uh, go back to your, uh, you know, research on orangs and, uh, with AI, uh, I'd love to hear more about, you know, what exactly, uh, you did and, and what your sort of, you know, main findings were and, and where you s sort of see that whole, uh, AI, uh, situation w going as far as it relates to, you know, animal welfare and, and zoos. Yeah, absolutely. So um, artificial intelligence, I think I just want to generally talk about first, yeah. uh, especially because there's been so much uh, generative AI that we've seen yeah. lately in terms of uh, generating art, uh, generating text, etc. AI is very much in our lives already. Uh, you know, every time Netflix recommends uh, a particular movie to you, um, anytime you're doing a predictive Google search, AI is everywhere. But the type of artificial intelligence that I was working with was um, based on video cameras and machine learning. So what happens there is video cameras uh, were set up all around the edge of our habitat at the Toronto Zoo um, by um, a Canadian company called Eagle and uh, Eagle with AI in the middle, uh, obviously <laughs> their focus. And so these cameras were able to give us uh, a view of that habitat. And essentially the plan was um, to be able to monitor those orangutans. What are they doing? The big thing about um, keepers is they work so incredibly hard. Um, they are so busy all day long doing everything uh, that needs to get done right? So they're very, very busy. They can't also, on top of all of that, sit there and know what those animals are doing all day long. How are the animals actually spending their day? Um, actually, when I just started uh, this collaboration with the Edmonton Valley Zoo, the first thing they wanted me to do was just to spend some time with the animals and let them know what their animals were doing and how they were doing. Just do a welfare assessment um, on a bunch of animals that they want to make sure um, are looked after to the highest level. So the point of this AI is so that I don't have to sit there uh, and, and do that tedious watching and note taking of what these animals are doing. So the cameras are installed to, to take all of this video footage and we started off by parsing them into uh, photos and then essentially my entire job was to train that artificial intelligence so the first stage is just saying hey um deep learning machine learning 
this is an orangutan you know the orange fuzzy thing that we see over here that's an orangutan so the first part is just yes orangutan uh the next part is then the individual identification we had six orangutans at the time now we have seven uh with baby wally although he's uh, already a year how time goes quickly um but we had six adult orangutans um they're two males, four females um, of at the time, uh, I think 15 to 50, 53. I don't know. It's changed because it's been years. Um, but the beautiful range of orangutans to also communicate, you know, what a male looks like as it develops as well. Because Booty, mm. even when we started, um, he he was developing his cheek pads but he, he looked so very different um closer to the end of of when i moved along so these individual identifications um of these orangutans what each one looks like so it can pick up and say that's sakali that's ramai etc because of course you would want that information not just what an orangutan is doing but who it is doing that mm. um is sakali always spending their time on the upper platform under a blanket type of thing and so then the next part is very much the behaviors what are they actually doing all day and that is definitely the most tedious part of it um the uh, ai is capable of of course recognizing orangutans the individuals um it's also capable of recognizing heat from a distance, uh, which is really cool. That was an idea, especially because of, of the time that this was implemented was COVID. So being able to detect if, you know, another great ape species so similar to us has a high temperature, something that uh, a zookeeper may not be able to detect very quickly, the cameras to be able to say, hey, there is a, a serious health concern and to be able to flag that is extremely important um, and heat mapping kind of where they're spending their time. Um, and so then right now it's still being finished up in terms of the individual behaviors, because like any animal, they complete a lot of behaviors. Those behaviors uh, can be very short, very, very quick. Uh, they can take long periods of time. They can look very different depending on the individual. Um, you know, the way one animal scratches versus another uh, can look quite distinct. So being able to train the artificial mm. intelligence, what all of those things look like, it, it quite simply takes a lot of time. What um, sort of time sorry. frame are you looking at? Like what, what time frame are we looking at? Um, I guess we're about two years into it now. That sounds correct. Um, again, the complexity of this, like there mm. was, there was no existing, um, program that you could use with orangutans uh there's there's some panda stuff that yeah, was done right. um facial recognition with pandas um there's a lot of heat mapping in um, other animals but the thing is uh this particular ai has all of it together it's not just facial recognition it's not just uh behavior tracking in terms of like almost a, a pedometer if you will it's kind of everything so it's unfortunately the type of things that takes a long time but data collection in general takes a long yeah. time so once something like this that's all encompassing of everything that would be useful to not only 
keepers in terms of, okay, where are they spending their time? What part of the habitat are they engaging with and not engaging with? Um, but it's also important from a healthcare standpoint of, um, are they favoring a leg? Uh, the AI is also going to be capable of uh, pose estimation. So kind of like looking at joints and how they're moved. Um, so if all of a sudden um, an arm appears to be injured, then the AI can flag that and let uh, people know. And then, of course, there's my standpoint, the, the researcher side of things. I'm getting data without having to sit there for, you know, eight hours a day and making notes of every single thing that happened. You're getting this mass data generation. So it's helping so many different people. And then, of course, the plan is to, um, you know, roll that out for all the other different species that would be primary uh interests so it's uh you know the the possibilities are endless type of thing but and unfortunately it takes a long time but in the grand scheme of things it will save a lot of individual time mm -hmm. and get more accurate data because of course humans are always going to have some sort of bias uh or you know distractions from time to time they're there are times that, you know, a whole uh, school's worth of children would come in and block our view yeah. of the orangutans <laughs> or something like that. So uh, a little bit more unbiased, flawless uh, collection of data. Yeah, no, that and it's, that's so important because, you know, often that's step one when it comes to any sort of welfare assessment, any sort of uh, dealing with any sort of welfare issues. It's always like set up cameras and you always wish you had more data from before this sort of issue happened. Uh, and, and yeah, at some point it sort of breaks down and, and nobody's looking at the footage anymore and, and, and stuff like that. So yeah, having something to, to do that, the possibilities would be, uh, would be as, as you said, endless with, um, how useful that could be for, for staff, that would be, yeah, that would be huge. Is that, is that sort of where you see the most immediate, um, you know, benefit AI would have in, in zoos or do you see, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously, I, I guess I would be biased there because yeah. I, I think it was a great project. I think um, it's really important technology. I think it's the kind of direction um, that is so critical because you know, you can't have somebody sitting there all day long uh, and monitoring every little thing. Uh, there, there are spaces to be cleaned and animals to be fed um, that it's just, it's not feasible with enough people kind of thing. So to be able to implement this technology, it really cuts down um, the, the time and financial burden um, by just having a technology that does it for you. So I think that's definitely a direction that this enrichment goes to be able to have more information. Uh, more information is essentially, you know, our, our best way to be equipped. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great direction. I think there's a lot of things simultaneously, uh, like what we were talking about earlier in terms of, well, what do these habitats look like? What types of different enrichment can we provide um, that's actually working. Mm. So uh, there's a lot of things to be to be looked at simultaneously. And again, the technology might allow us to look at those things just a little bit quicker as well. Yeah, yeah, no, that's yeah. 
super interesting and, and, and super exciting at the same time. I think, I think that would be absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. So, so since you spent, you know, all this time looking at photos of orangutans and, and, and <laughs> videos and, and all this, this time spent, spent with that, that group, is there any sort of unexpected takeaways that you had as far as, uh, you know, something you weren't really expecting to, uh, to, to learn from your, from your research? So I think you're asking about the animals on on a greater level. Uh, I I feel like the immediate thing that comes to mind just makes me laugh um, in that when you start to work with animals, you encounter things you didn't expect. Um, so for example, I thought I would be doing a lot of facial recognition with orangutans. Um, and actually I know someone's quoted me before in terms of um, how good I got at um, butt recognition because it turns out the orangutans don't just you know sit there and look at the cameras all pretty um they of course are in all sorts of different positions and i still have to know which orangutan i'm looking at at no matter what position so ezekiel and i would always joke that we have an exceptional ability uh, to recognize literally every angle of an orangutan um <laughs> Which is a funny thing to again teach uh, this artificial intelligence. Like, this is this butt versus yeah. that butt. Um, but it is critical. Pun there, uh, accidental. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the animals more generally, I, I just have an incredible respect for for orangutans. Uh, you know, just the the strength that they have, the mm. the power they move through their space, the way they carry themselves um, is just very you can't take your eyes away from it kind of thing so at least when you're you're spending those long days making all of those notes they're just an incredible species um the interesting things they do like uh if the keepers leave out a bucket and and the sponge kind mm. of thing then they'll they'll wash the windows because they've seen cleaning staff um obviously keeping everything nice and clean for the visitors and so they'll do things like that or um i love i have a lot of uh screenshots of sakali specifically because she's always kind of with a blanket mm. um and so times where she almost looks like a superhero because <laughs> she'll be climbing up things and she has this almost cape-like blanket hanging off of her <laughs> um but other times that they would use something really random to to go down to the lagoon and put it into um the water and soak up the water and then either bring you know on the very hot days bring that over to to keep themselves nice and cool um or they would use that when they maybe didn't have a cup or didn't feel like using the cup that day i guess mm. um and just use that kind of sponge technique to drink the water from the lagoon instead. Um, and so just seeing all these different ways that they were interacting with their environment um, was always quite fascinating. Every single animal seemed to have almost like a different technique of even how to, um, often the keepers would hide things as we know in in little boxes or, or the little cages that are mm. up high. Um, and they all had kind of these different techniques as to how they would uh, extract all the treats from those. Um, and even different patterns. Like I know Ezekiel and I would almost make these bets in the morning like, oh, uh, I think it's going to be um, Ramai and Jenga that are going to come out this morning. So I think that Ramai is going to go this direction, Jenga 
is going to go that direction. And uh, we got pretty good at it mm-hmm. that uh, we would know which direction, which kind of like pattern they would like to take to be most successful in their kind yeah. of foraging in the morning. Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting uh, hearing you talk about them because it's, and, and uh, you know, hearing about the challenges of training the AI because of the amount of like individuality uh, that each one of those animals possesses. And I think, you know, maybe orangs are a little easier to tell them individually based on behavior apart. But in my experience, uh, you know, the, the longer you work with even a herd of, you know, 20 bison or, or whatever you're working with, there's, there's still so much individuality that you get to learn from each individual animal. And, uh, that's something that I think is, is going to be hugely impactful in, in, you know, animal well-being and and the, the whole study around that because yeah there is so many things that you know this specific animal does that none of the others do and <laughs> like how do you account for those preferences how do you account for those those proclivities all all those things are like so uh so important to that specific individual like it's uh, it's fascinating that's a very complex job and i have just the utmost respect for the zookeepers and and their knowledge of the individuals that they're working with cuz they they obviously have so much species knowledge as well but but there really is there's this individual aspect the personality of each of these animals i find it funny in terms of of the history of philosophy of of thinking about non-human animals always as these lesser beings mm-hmm. um and um that they're not capable of things that they are not these individuals and of course anyone who has exposure to these even if it's just your pets uh you see these very drastic individual differences mm-hmm. um and and how you have to take that into consideration as well as you're saying it's 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 a lot there's a yeah. lot of things to take into consideration absolutely um it's impressive yeah no it really is and and yeah it's gonna be very interesting to see uh where all that goes uh, in the future, especially with uh, AI and all that. But uh, um, is there any sort of last uh, things you'd like to, to plug or any sort of takeaways that you'd like to, to tell the people that are, that are listening, anything like that? Um, I think kind of in our, our pre-talk, um, there was a little bit of just like what of the facilities and, and, and kind of visitors, what kind of, things you would want to see from zoos or those spaces. Um, and I I just hope that kind of like the visitors that come to, to zoos and conservation, um, there's a lot of walking through these spaces and, and just trying to see as many animals as possible. Um, and again, uh, the kind of comments that you hear that are very human focused. Mm. Um, and I hope that more people can take the time to just like learn one or two facts about animals as they move through these spaces and really recognize that there isn't, you know, as we said earlier, this hierarchy of intelligence that they're all so impressive for their own reasons. They mm-hmm. all um, have adapt to their particular design uh, based on the environmental pressures and how they've been successful surviving um, in those environmental pressures. So um, what, what makes that animal interesting? What makes that animal different from us? What makes that animal similar to us? Um, there's all sorts of comparisons. Obviously, I'm in comparative cognition. That's that's the thing I find most interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not always the differences. There are also the similarities as well, but well simultaneously respecting the differences. 
Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, awesome. It's, uh, yeah, there's, there's so much to learn about so many different animals and then, uh, yeah, I, I hope, uh, people take their time and, and really ask some questions while they're going through facilities. It's, uh, it's hugely important to really start to understand, uh, you know, what zoos are doing and what, uh, what we can do. So yeah, that's, uh, a great takeaway. Uh, well, uh, Jenna, it was an awesome conversation. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate uh, all the work that you're doing and, uh, and, uh, for this uh, great chat. So thank you. It was wonderful getting an opportunity to chat with you about these things. Yeah. Thank you. And to everyone listening, uh, until next time. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.